Thank you. Thank you, John. Good morning, everybody. Praying for me this morning reminds me of the very first time that I preached at TCF before I was an elder, about two years before I was ordained an elder. And uh, there was a note in the bulletin that said, pray for the morning service. Bill Sullivan is preaching. <laughs> There's a lot of ways you can take that. <laughs> reminds me of many funny bulletin notices, not necessarily that we've had, that others have had, but we won't get into that. So... Rather than that, I'm going to help motivate you slackers here this morning. I've compiled a list of some lesser-known benefits of immersing yourself in the Word of God. For examples, your biceps will get ripped from lifting this heavy book every day. Or at the very least, it'll keep you from eating Doritos for 10 minutes. Uh, VeggieTales episodes will make more sense. <laughs> you might find a secret Bible coat and find out when the end times begin. You'll see the parts of the Bible that were inspired by J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> and you'll maybe understand the symbolism in Harry Potter a little bit better. Your wife will finally be able to dust the shelf your Bible has been sitting on for the last 12 years. House cleaning, right? The Bible has more sex and violence than Game of Thrones. Now you're curious, aren't you? You now have a super spiritual excuse for hitting or hiding in the bathroom from your kids for 30 minutes. Stop pounding on the door. I'm reading the Bible. You can finally read all the cool stuff that Joel Osteen left out of the books. So much stuff. If you read your Bible for 30 days straight, this is a little-known thing. If you read your Bible for 30 days straight, you win a pizza party in heaven. Did you know that? That's in Hezekiah. What more do you need? You'll finally find out if the Israelites made it out of slavery in Egypt. I won't spoil it for you. You can find authoritative, irrefutable, profitable instruction from the benevolent, all-powerful, eternal creator of the universe. Now that last benefit is certainly not a lesser known benefit, at least if you've been at TCF for a while. All humor aside, we have an amazing resource in God's word. It is life-giving. It's life-changing. It's a resource that we should love and we should celebrate and know and submit to. As believers in Christ, we should live our lives in the spirit of Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in Scripture, and it's an ode to the beauty and power and truth of the Word of God. But we live in a season of history when the Bible no longer has any real authority, if it ever did. But I think there was a season we could go back 50 years and say, at least our culture was scripture-informed, if not you know, really believers in Christ and believers in the Word. And this is true not just in the lives of unbelievers, which we can't really expect the Word of God to have any authority in the lives of unbelievers but in the lives of many who claim the name of Christ, who's the one revealed in Scripture to be the very Word made flesh, who lived a sinless life, suffered and died for us, and rose again in victory over sin and death. We call it the Word of God because we're supposed to believe that that's what this book really is to us. As His beloved children, it's God's Word. But we often don't treat this book with the highest respect and submission that it demands of us as his followers. If God, the highest authority, 
has decided in His love and mercy to give us His Word, then His Word must have authority over us. But there's this dread disease that we're all infected with. Steve, I'm hearing some cutting out. Should I just use the podium mic? Okay. If God, the highest authority, has decided in his love and mercy to give us his word, then his word must have authority over us. But there's this dread disease that we're all infected with, and it's called sin. And it works against our submission to almost any kind of authority. It first manifests itself at the very beginning of human history when the enemy of our souls first got our attention by asking Eve, did God really say? In a sinful desire to be our own bosses, to be our own authority, we as his creatures have been finding ways to ask that question ever since. Surely God doesn't mean for us to deny ourselves. Surely God doesn't mean for us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Surely God doesn't mean for us to give sacrificially of our time and our resources. Surely God doesn't mean that even looking at a woman with lust is committing adultery with her in my heart. Surely God can't possibly want us to rejoice in suffering. Surely God can't really expect us to love our enemies. Surely God can't mean homosexual behavior is sinful. After all, isn't love love? Did God really say? Yes, my brothers and sisters, God really said all these things and more. And what we have is what he said to us here in this book, the Bible. This book is a living and active resource. It's sharper than a double-edged sword, it says of itself. This book penetrates our hardness of heart and gets to the root of our sin. This book is our authority for faith, that is what we believe, and our practice, how we live our lives as followers of Christ, as Christians. Or is it? We see churches splitting in conflict all over the world about the authority of the Word of God. Just last month, the Anglican Church in Australia split when the doctrinally conservative churches created a new denomination. The rift was prompted when a majority of the Australian bishops in this church rejected the biblical definition of marriage as between a man and a woman. One Tasmanian bishop nailed it. He said, the issue was the authority of the Bible. Opponents describe the new diocese as corrosive, but those committed to defending the biblical gospel consider it an answer to prayer. The Anglican Church, of course, we know has suffered similar splits in, here in North America and in Brazil and in New Zealand. The Methodist Church in America will soon experience a church split. And again, it's not just about gay marriage or transgender issues. Ultimately, the root of these conflicts and splits is the authority of God's word. It can all be traced back to dismissing biblical doctrines. The conflict goes back to that denial of essential doctrines, which happened years ago in some of these churches, and now it's just manifesting because of this particular issue. In the end, it's the same question that the devil asked Eve. Did God really say? If God really said... If God really said, then as the maker of the universe, he has the absolute right to define critical concepts like love, like hate, 
like right and wrong for us, the things that make for peace with him and a righteous life and the things that lead to spiritual death. He can define those things. If God really said we have a responsibility to know what he said, to believe what he said, and to do what he said. Just this week, the results of a national survey were released, and this survey asked some key questions about theology. Some of you may have seen some of the news reports about this, and it's very revealing about the state of our nation and about the authority or lack thereof of Scripture. I want to highlight just a few of those statements that were made in the survey, and I want you to think about how you would respond to these statements, whether you agree or not. And I don't want you to respond out loud because I don't want to embarrass anyone if you get the answers wrong. And there is a right and a wrong answer to each statement because included in the idea about the authority of God is the idea that Scripture is knowable, it's understandable, and there is a right way and a wrong way to read and interpret the Word of God. One statement in the survey read, the Holy Spirit can tell me to do something which is forbidden in the Bible. Of all those surveyed, 22% strongly or somewhat agree, and 16% were not sure. Now, the more troubling finding is that just among evangelicals, 27%, you notice that's more than strongly agree in the general public, 27% strongly or somewhat agree, and 4% were not sure. What does that tell us about the authority of Scripture in our culture and even in our churches? Did God really say? God the Holy Spirit, my brothers and sisters, does not contradict what is written in the Word of God, period. That would be just confusing. And the Bible also tells us that God is not a God of confusion. Another statement in the survey was, gender identity is a matter of choice. Now, the first part of the results, again, are not surprising at all because 18% somewhat agree, 24% strongly agree, and that adds up to 42%. 7% are not sure. So half the population is either not sure about it or agrees with that statement. But just among evangelicals, 5% somewhat agree, and 32% strongly agree with the statement that gender identity is a matter of choice. And that's more than the percentage of all those who strongly agree in the general public. Brothers and sisters, Genesis 127 tells us that God created male and female, period. Jesus reiterated this in Matthew 19.4 when he asked, haven't you read, referring back to the authority of the word of God, right? He said, haven't you read in the beginning that the creator made them male, male and female? Now, none of these biblical truths need we need uh, need us be nasty about. We don't need to be nasty about what we believe and how we express this. We should demonstrate compassion for those who are confused about these truths or confused about their own identity, especially in the culture at large. But to be kind and compassionate doesn't need, doesn't mean that we need to ask the question, did God really say? We can have compassion and understanding and be kind and gentle in our responses without saying, well, did God really say this? When we read in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 9, we see Paul writing to the church, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit, inherit the kingdom of God. So this isn't, if you notice, just a condemnation of homosexual behavior. We have to be honest here, and this is also part of rightly interpreting Scripture. Sexually immoral, idolaters, and adulterers are also included in this list. But did God really say that homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God? Another statement in the survey said, the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. Among the general population, we see that 16% somewhat agree and 30% strongly agree. Again, that's close to half the population. But among evangelicals, more than 25% somewhat or strongly agree with this. So again, it's not too surprising considering the cultural shifts that we've seen that the population at large has these opinions. But among evangelicals, that's even more troubling. So when we read in 1 Corinthians, and we read in Romans 1, and we read in 1 Timothy, and we read in Jude, and we read in Leviticus about God's judgment of homosexual behavior, and then we ask, well, did God really say? Sounds like cultural Christianity to me. Have you ever heard that phrase? How about cafeteria Christianity? Have you ever heard that phrase? You know what that means? You go to the buffet, right? And you pick the food you like, and you leave the food you don't like off your plate. So you don't like uh, Brussels sprouts? You don't get those. You just get the steak from the buffet. It's interesting in this survey to see how inconsistent Christians are. For example, after seeing the results of the previous questions we mentioned, that is, more than a quarter of believers dismissed the Bible's prohibitions of homosexual behavior, more than a quarter of Christians somewhat or strongly agree that gender identity is a matter of choice, and almost a third agree that the Holy Spirit can tell me to do something that's forbidden in the Bible, we see results from other questions which contradict this. We see a total of 94% of Christians either somewhat or strongly agree with the statement that the Bible has the authority to tell us what we must do. Good, huh? About 99% of evangelicals agree that the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Again, that's good, right? But I don't know how to square the results of those two statements with the statements that we just read. They're at odds with each other, at the very least, very inconsistent. That is, how can such a large percentage say the Bible is their highest authority... And at the same time, so many agree with the statement, the Holy Spirit can tell me to do something that's forbidden in the Bible. Or the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. Something doesn't compute here. But isn't that part of what we're dealing with when we remember Satan's question to Eve? Did God really say? Our sin-clouded minds often, if we're honest look for loopholes, we look for justifications, we look for exceptions to my sin. But the Bible is God's only special revelation. It's God-breathed, and it's that we have, that this we can enjoy and appreciate. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We have what we need in the Word of God. Because of this truth about the Word, it has unique and final authority. 
Jesus, God the Son, spoke of the Bible as having the highest authority. We see this in Matthew chapter 5. He wrote, or Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law. He's talking about the Bible of his day. Until all is accomplished, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus spoke often about the scriptures being fulfilled. He said in John chapter 10, verse 35, that the scriptures cannot be broken or nullified or set aside. If Jesus, the word made flesh, he's called, affirmed the authority of scripture, so must we. We talked about some of this in our house church meeting Wednesday night when we studied 1 Corinthians 11. And if those of you who know what's in that passage understand that that includes a section about men and women and head coverings in church. It's controversial, to say the least. But ultimately, that section of Scripture that we studied, the first half of 1 Corinthians 11, is about authority. Each of us has to choose things each and every day, and this includes who has the authority in our lives, who we will submit to. These daily choices, they start as soon as you get up for uh, whatever you're going to do during the day. There's dozens of choices all of us make each and every day. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, what am I going to do for that? How to spend your free time, how to relate to other people, what clothes to wear today. Now, most of these choices are relatively inconsequential, though they're not necessarily unimportant. For example, if the forecast is rain today, bring it on, Lord, we need it, right? But if the forecast is rain today and you choose not to bring a raincoat or an umbrella, you could get wet. Well, that's not going to kill you. It'll just make you wet. Maybe you should have given some authority to the weather forecast. Or, if you choose to sleep in a little bit later than usual, you hit the snooze bar maybe a couple times, well, you may be late to work or to school, and that might create a little bit of trouble for you. Maybe the authority of the school or workplace should have been a little bit higher on your list of authority than your own personal authority which gave you the desire, gave in to the desire to sleep an extra 15 minutes. If you choose to speed because you're late, that might create even more trouble for you. You might not get caught, but maybe you should have paid more attention to the authority of the speed limit sign, which is placed by governing authorities. Maybe you should have submitted to this authority rather than hoping or assuming it would have submit to you. But all of us make choices every day. And those choices are often related to who's in charge. Who or what is our authority? That's a question that guides our choices. If, for example, your authority is your teacher, your principal at school, or your boss at work, you can certainly choose to be late to school or work, but there may be negative consequences to that choice. In your relationships, you could certainly choose to treat people with disrespect, but that, too, would likely have negative consequences. Maybe you won't have any friends. You can choose to speed on the way to wherever you're going, but that could have negative consequences. So when we make poor choices, it's often because we claim ourselves as the final authority in such situations, rather than our boss or our school principal or maybe our parent 
setting the standard of when we get to school or work and our submission to that standard of authority. We choose to be late and suffer the consequences. Rather than submit to the speed limit, which again is the law, we choose to stretch it. Oh, I'll, do, I'll do 15 minutes, oh, 15 mile per hour over, and we run the risk of the authority of the police giving us a very expensive speeding ticket. Now, these things are just everyday examples, if you think about it, about a spiritual truth as well. This is a practical truth that we looked at, but there's a spiritual truth at work. Think about this. The only reason our society, at least in much of the world, runs relatively smoothly is because of the reality that there is authority and we submit to that authority willingly. Otherwise, we'd see chaos, right? If there was no authority, we'd see chaos. If everybody just did whatever they wanted to do, we'd see chaos. One of the key decisions, the significant choices we make each and every day is who or what we will submit to. And it happens several times each day without us even thinking about it because it's in our uh, we, we, we've just gotten into that habit, right, of, of respecting authority and submitting to authority even when we don't like it. In the spiritual realm in our daily lives and in the choices we make, do I submit to the word of God as my final authority or do I try to make it submit to me? Submission is to be our response to legitimate authority. And this is giving, given willingly, not under compulsion. Authority exercised without willing submission is just called oppression. Even though many of the troubling things that we're witnessing in our culture right now seem kind of new, there has never been a generation, never a time or place, where Christians haven't had to decide whether they will submit to the prevailing cultural norms to get along, or will they trust and serve God alone. And how do we know what God wants? We have his word, my brothers and sisters. We have his word. When push comes to shove, when the Bible calls me to believe something or act in a certain way, what will I believe? Will I obey? Whatever the cost of that submission to the word is. If we are truly followers of Christ... We all experience the conviction that Scripture brings us. We're convicted of our greed, of our lust. We're convicted of our pride, our envy, our gossip, our selfishness, our ingratitude, the way we sometimes treat others. We're convicted maybe about legalism or the opposite of that, license. In our culture, we see these incredible divisions. It's like we cannot get along in our culture. And we see people divided into various camps and tribes based on what they think. Now, ultimately, for us as believers, the specific questions, for example, of LGBTQ and abortion issues that people use to categorize us should really have little or nothing to do with our political leanings and everything to do with this question of authority. We need to ask ourselves just how much authority the Bible has in our lives. Does it have more than our political persuasions? Does it have more than any other influence in our lives? How much do our Bibles speak for God into our lives? 
do we really consider the Bible to be God's word? We call it that. Do we treat it as such? Or does the Bible contain God's word? But there are things we can dismiss rather than wrestle with how this word applies to us, applies to me, how this applies to our world. There was a pastor who wrote, there were more than a few times where that was a real question for me. There are more than a few theological positions I hold that part of me wishes I didn't hold. My flesh whispers that I don't really need to cut myself off from certain things, and it awaits with ready-made excuses. He continues, My tendency to want to please people urges me to take the sharp edges off the Bible, to bring fog into its clarity. But such a road only leads to me as Lord, and that is the path of destruction. I am limited, I am foolish, I am sinful. My hope is in God alone, the author of my life and the author of the word of God. I choose to submit myself to the authority of God's word. I hope you do too. Do we have love for, do we have respect for God's word, the kind of love and respect for the word of God that's illustrated in Psalm 119, which we mentioned earlier? Do we allow God's word to reveal to us not just what's wrong with the world, but what's wrong with me? If the word of God is only a tool to help us see how far the world has slid into the sinful sewer, and yes, you know, it certainly does that. We have to admit it does that. It reveals that. But if that's only as far as we get in our reading and studying of the Bible, then we're like the Pharisees. In the parable of the Pharisees and the tax collector in Luke 18.11, and that Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector or this Democrat or this Republican. That's not in Scripture. But that's not the end of the story that Jesus told. In verse 13 we read, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, scripture goes on, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I do pray that prayer, but I admit I don't pray it every day, and I probably should. If we submit to the word rather than trying to get Scripture to submit to us, we cannot come away with any other conclusion. We are sinners. We are in need of a Savior, and thanks be to God, we have a Savior, and his name is Jesus, and he is merciful, and he's already accomplished our salvation on the cross. It's there for us to receive. He's already conquered sin and death. He's a risen Savior, and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. These are the things that our word tells us. So if we submit to his word, we know and believe these things are true, and knowing and believing these things inevitably affects what we do, how we live our lives, how we think. Again, that's why we say often, That the word is our authority for faith, that is what we believe, and practice how we live and what we do. 
Matthew Henry wrote, Those are most happy who are preserved, most free from the defilement of sin, who simply believe God's testimonies and depend on his promises. Now, God's testimonies are one of the many ways his word is described in Psalm 119. That's one reason I said earlier that we should be living in the light of Psalm 119 and the love and appreciation for the word that this psalm expresses. The various themes used for scripture in that psalm have different shades of meaning. You see different words. You see, for example, law. You see precepts. You see commands. You see decrees, testimonies. But all of those are referring to God's word. They do have different nuances of meaning. For example, what God wants, what he appoints to happen, what he demands, or what he has spoken. But they all refer to that one big idea. This is about God's word, God's revelation of his plans, his purposes, and himself in words we can understand and we can submit to. Now, surely, one writer writes, surely it is significant that this intricate, finely crafted, single-minded love poem, the longest in the Bible, is not about marriage or children or food or drink or mountains or sunsets or rivers and oceans, but about the Bible itself. What God's word says is true and trustworthy. We see that reiterated in Psalm 119. What God's word demands is right. What God's word provides is good. We see this cited throughout Psalm 119. You should go home and read Psalm 119. It reiterates all the things we're looking at here this morning. You can think too highly of your interpretations of Scripture, but you cannot think too highly of Scripture's interpretation of itself. You cannot, or you can exaggerate your authority in handling the Scriptures, but you cannot exaggerate the Scripture's authority to handle you. You can use the Word of God to come to wrong conclusions, but you cannot find any wrong conclusions in the Word of God. You do not need another special revelation from God outside the Bible. You can listen to the voice of God every day. Christ still speaks because the Spirit has already spoken. So we see in the New Testament Jesus asking the question, Have you not read? We referenced that a little bit ago. Have you not read? He says that several times in different encounters. And what's the implication in those encounters. Well, Jesus is telling those who opposed him that if they had known the scriptures better, they wouldn't be making the mistake that they were making. I want to know God's word better. I want to know God's word better so that Jesus never needs to say to me, have you not read? God's written revelation to us in his word can be known and understood. Why else would Jesus say, have you not read? implying that if they had, they would understand better. The apostles also quoted Scripture often. They reasoned and taught from Scripture and pointed to Jesus, the fulfillment of those Scriptures. Jesus valued the Word, and he taught his disciples to do the same. Now we have the same Scriptures that Jesus had, and we have more, and we should follow their examples. One of Christian history's greatest theologians was Augustine or Augustine. He wrote much that's influenced Christian thinking for about 1600 years. And he was living, if you know his story, he was living a very ungodly life when, as the story goes, 
he sat in his friend's garden and he was contemplating his sinful life. And he admittedly enjoyed the desires of the world, but something was missing. And then at that moment, he heard a child singing, take up and read, take up and read. Noticing a scroll near his friend's side, he picked it up and he read Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. And later he wrote, no further would I read, nor had I any need. Instantly, at the end of this sentence, a clear light flooded my heart and the darkness of doubt vanished away. Here's what he read that day, Romans 13, beginning with verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You think that hit him right here? So yes, Augustine had a moment when providentially, through the voice of the little child, the Holy Spirit spoke to him. But isn't it interesting what the Holy Spirit had to say? Take up and read. Take up and read. The Holy Spirit pointed Augustine to God's word. So I say to you today, my brothers and sisters, take up and read. Augustine was directed to the word of God, the primary way we hear God's voice. And when we read the word, when we know the word, it shapes us, it molds us into the image of Christ, and it holds captive our conscience for all we believe and all we do. We submit to God's word and don't try to make it submit to us. And this idea of being held captive to conscience reminds me of the moment in the life of Martin Luther. And with this we'll close. He was called before an assembly of Catholic Church officials to defend his teaching on justification by grace through faith, among other things. And the first day he was called, he said, I don't know, and he asked for a recess. So, you know, we think of Martin Luther just standing there, etc., etc., and this I declare, etc. But he said, I need another day, because he knew that there would be consequences. But then he came back the next day, and they asked him the same questions. He was asked if he would recant. In other words, would he deny what he had been teaching, what he believed, what he knew to be, what the Word of God clearly taught? So as we close, I want you to listen. This is from a movie about Luther. I want you to listen to his words and ask yourself, if you would be tempted to deny the clear teaching of God's word in this cultural moment or in anything in your life for the sake of fitting in, for the sake of expediency, for the sake of not offending, for the sake of wanting to be accepted or liked, can you say your conscience is held captive to the word of God? Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves, my conscience 
is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot. And I will not. Recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. <laughs>